Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin. Cathy. What's on your mind this week? Well, I think a lot of us have been talking about Derek Scally's really interesting and very unusual, in a way, uh, article. Um, I think it's called, What About Ireland's Magdalene Men? And he's basically turning the picture around in terms of the fact that we know an awful lot of the stories of the women who were sent to these institutions and these things happened to them in Irish society. And we we see them. They went and visited uh, President Higgins and we kind of get to look them in their eye and hear their stories. But what we don't hear so often is the stories of the men who had harmed them. Um, and let those women end up in institutions because those stories just aren't told. That's right. As Derek says, you know, after all the excavation of everything that's gone on and the Catholic Church and all the rest, the one thing, the biggest mystery of all remains Catholic Ireland's apparent academic of immaculate conceptions, as Derek puts it. Yeah. Now, that makes it sound as if he's just he's just sort of writing a piece of detestation of the whole thing. And but actually, that isn't what he's doing. What he's looking for, Roisin, is to get these men to come forward because he believes that they were also, well, affected. some of them at least were, yeah. were affected. They were a small, scared part of this this terrible jigsaw. And he he brings up Ricky MacDonald, who Rosita Boland wrote about, um, won so many awards for, uh, who was Anne Lovett's boyfriend. Um, and as, as, uh, as Derek puts it, he, the man who emerged from that piece, was a small, scared piece on the board game of 1980s Ireland. It's really evocative, isn't it? Isn't it's it? really thought-provoking as well when you think of all those other men that were similarly in those roles and we don't hear from them. Yeah. How it affected them, how their lives went on after some yeah. terrible thing happened. You know, that they perhaps, not in Ricky McDonald's case, but in other cases, that men have perpetrated things but had have gone on in their lives to look back and see that what happened wasn't right or that they yeah. were kind of in a situation where that was seen as something that you could do and you could get away with and women were to be treated like that. So I think it's really interesting what Derek is doing and he's trying to get those men to come forward. It'll be interesting to see if he gets much reaction, you know. It will be. And he, as he says himself, what's to be gained by it? Well, simple. Silence hurts and speaking heals. If that is, an empathetic ear is available. And he finishes in absolute confidence with no legal risks. I would like to listen to your story. And he gives his his uh, his email address is dscally at irishtimes.com. Yeah. And we in the Women's Podcast so support this. Yeah, we think, I think it's really good. And he, like he says, silence hurts. I remember a few years ago, good, like probably 10 years ago, I wrote a piece this is way before Rosita had done her amazing investigation, but I wrote a piece in the when I had my column about Anne Lovett and just talking about that, about the idea that somebody 
got Anne Lovett pregnant. You know, it didn't happen on its own. But all the years we've been talking about Anne Lovett, we never talked about that no. person, whoever that might be. I mean, we're, you know, we're still not fully um, at the end of that mystery. But at the same time, it was always the focus on Anne there, you know, yes, pregnant. And, and, and always and imagined there were, there were just all these serried rows of loads of men behind it. So I think Derek's point is that some of them at least weren't the terrible, terrible people that we all think they are and that it would be wonderful if they would come forward. Yeah, I think it's great. It got a great reaction online as well and people were really were moved by I'm it. I'm not surprised. It's, 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 it's original thinking, isn't it? it is. So what's next, Roisin? Well, we're going to have to talk about the State of the Union address by Mr. Trump, but we, we won't to. talk about him. Yes. We don't have to talk about him. Okay. Do you like that? We can leave him out okay. completely. <laughs> Let everybody imagine the scene he's speaking. And yeah, then he's just speaking. Mo- His we'll mouth is opening yes. and closing. Yes. And anyway, but the scene around it was really fascinating. The women have never had so much power in the uh, US government ever before. So you've all these women sitting there, a lot of them wearing white, um, obviously not the Republican ones, but a lot of the Democratic ones wearing white, the colour of suffrage. And just making a point of protest against the president. Um, So they weren't clapping and they weren't cheering and they sat there sort of stoically while he talked, his lips moved. I mean, even Nancy Pelosi behind was doing this sarcastic kind of clapping thing and, you know, it was just kind of extraordinary. Not what he was saying because it's just the usual, the usual stuff from him. But that, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she brought Anna Maria Archilla, who was one of the women who confronted Senator Jeff Flack in September over his planned vote in Brett Kavanaugh's case. Do you remember the woman when yes. he was going into the lift? Yes. Um, so she brought her and the, the Democrats, the women in white, they sort of stayed seated. They didn't react to, to, to the um, to what Trump was saying. And then the other really interesting thing was, you remember Stacey Abrams? Yes, who nearly nearly made it into the Senate. Who nearly yes. did make it. And she was nominated by the Democratic Party to um, sort of do a rebuttal uh, to the State of the Union. This happens, you know, there's somebody who goes rebuttal, but she's the first black woman and non-sitting public official to do that, which is kind of quite clever of the Democratic Party. Very much so. To choose her and to let her have that moment. So in a way, the State of the Union address unusually was not about the person delivering it, but more about what was happening around it and the way those women used it. What was happening so visibly, how they used the white white clothing as a... It's kind of hopeful. It feels like watching Jesus, maybe things are changing. And the other thing, a lot of people spoke about him as being very much a a weakened president. Like the Irish Times editorial talks about him trying to recast himself in some parts of it as a feminist, which is just hilarious. But it just shows how much he must be feeling kind of under pressure that he's even trying to do stuff like that. Yeah, we said we wouldn't discuss him, didn't we? No, we did. Well, you know, if he's trying to be a feminist, we can... (laughs) (laughs) And Roisin, there is a superb piece by a woman called Olivia Potter in the London Independent, dated the 30th of January, which we really want you to read. But Roisin, tell us about it. It hasn't happened here, but you know the way things happen in England. And then no, but the principle, the same principle, principle applies. It's universal. In yes. Avon and Somerset Police have concluded that there is a correlation between women leaving the house and them being harassed. The more women leave the house, they found, the more they are harassed. If they leave the house alone and in jogging gear, God forbid, this correlation becomes ever closer. So their solution to reduce the harassment, well, it is 
for women to stop jogging on their own. That's they have a new campaign. It's called hashtag jog on campaign. I'd be saying to the police, jog on yourselves. Yeah. And they're trying to be, you know, proactive and helpful. They're, they want women to feel safe while running. So they're sort of saying, go in groups and you know, don't go on your own. And this woman writing the article is really not happy. She's saying that. Superintendent Mary Wright acknowledges that women can feel uncomfortable, intimidated or scared to go out for a run and suggested that instead of braving the great outdoors alone, women could exercise in a group. It's a great way to feel safe, keep you motivated and deter threatening behaviour. Women might join a running club. But once again is the point that instead of it being about people not harassing women, it's again about women taking steps to make sure they are not harassed. And it's just so annoying. You know, women going out in their very sexy leggings like putting themselves out there in the world and almost what what else would happen except that they would be harassed yeah. and the focus is all wrong um, this article is actually quite funny I would recommend it um, she says why stop at running why not follow in Taliban footsteps and ensure women be accompanied by an escort every time they leave the house are we really still this backward and she says this sort of misguided advice is exactly why so few women report harassment and attacks for fear that they're blamed rather than supported. So now, as well as having to explain our choice of clothes, we have to also explain why we dared to go running alone. Funny how few men are told to move around in groups to prevent stabbings and muggings. Brilliant. Olivia Potter concludes by saying one wonders if the police had made the correlation between men leaving the house and harassment whether we'd have seen a very different campaign whether it would have been harassers please don't leave the house please don't approach women speak to women or even look at women why not consider only moving around with handcuffs on so when you turn it on its head it really is ridiculous and I think it was a really funny piece and a great way to explain why stop blaming the people who are the victims these situations and look at ways to stop this happening. Thank you, Roisin. And thank you, Olivia Potter, for writing that very good piece, which actually crystallises a problem at the heart of so many things we discuss in the Women's Podcast. So what have you got in store for us on this episode? Well, Roisin, today I am speaking to Dr Aoife Abbey, an intensive care doctor who has written a really quite fascinating book called Seven Signs of Life. In it, Dr. Abbey shows us what a doctor sees of humanity as it comes through the revolving door of the hospital and she takes us beyond a purely medical perspective. With very little ego, I have to say. Seven emotions, grief, anger, joy, fear, distraction, disgust and hope are used to illustrate the story and they help Dr. Abbey describe what it's like to care for the living and the dying and, as importantly maybe, their relatives. I began by asking Dr. Abbey why she chose to specialise in intensive care. I really love it. I think probably the first thing that made me uh, be drawn towards intensive care was the fact that it remains such a broad specialty. So um, kind of when, when you specialise, if you pick a specialty that's more of an organ, like respiratory medicine or renal medicine, you look after kidneys and kidney diseases, like with intensive care, you you kind of retain a general um a general overview of everything and I always had this I'm a geek at heart I love studying I love knowing things I love reading books and I kind of it always frightened me a bit to think that I would just focus on one thing and forget everything else so I like that it's a broad overview um the other thing is 
in intensive care, you get to work with lots of people very closely, lots of different specialties. It's a big kind of multidisciplinary team specialty. There's lots of um, other allied health professionals, advanced nurses, physios, occupational therapists, etc. Um, so there's a very big sense of community spirit. Like you don't work in a silo. It's very, it's, it's very much a team sport. Um, and I guess the last thing would be ethics. I mean, I, the ethics of the situations you're in are fascinating. Um, often, I mean, you're dealing with things where you're not quite sure what life is, what people want, and um, it, it's very interesting, kind of the ethical conundrums that you get presented with. Yes, because because unusually, I suppose, if you don't, sometimes you, you, you don't ever get to talk to those people, to the patients. No. They come yeah. in in a state where they are probably, they have no speech. They yeah. have, you, the only way you can ever get to know them is through their relatives. Mm, yeah. Um, and sometimes you don't even meet a relative. Absolutely. I mean, I've looked after patients for months and if they're lucky enough then to survive and sometimes they choose to come back to have a look at the intensive care unit because um, often people can suffer from post-traumatic stress and um, psychological issues as a result of being semi-aware of the surroundings in intensive care. Um, so patients sometimes come back to visit so they can straighten out kind of what they think they saw, what they saw. Um, do they do that? Yeah, people sometimes come back and visit the ITU and it helps them kind of to, um, I guess, marry up what they kind of saw when they were semi-conscious and what the delusions were and if they had delirium, frightening things that they might have seen and then to see it in real life to try and um, make sense of, of where they were. But sometimes a patient comes and either I don't recognise them, somebody has to say that's so-and-so and I'm like, oh wow, or... And certainly, most of the time, they don't know me. I mean, I can think of once in the last year when a patient came back and remembered my name, which is an Irish name, um, and it's not that common in England. And I was, like, astounded, the fact that I said, oh, you don't remember me. And he said, no, no, I do, Aretha. And I, like, literally, that was, like, probably one of the most wonderful moments in the last seven years. Sure it was, because one of the things that jumped out at me, you did, you did, a, you did a roll call at work one day. You, you, if I took a mental walk around the intensive care unit I worked at that day, the roll call would have read pedestrian versus truck, pedestrian versus train, car versus tree, car versus truck, pedestrian versus car, bicycle versus car, fall from scaffold. And all of these people, I presume, arrive into you in a, in, in a near-death state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is what you're dealing with, and this is why the ethics come into it. You don't know very often what their end of life... Yeah, you don't know what they wanted. Um, and sometimes you're faced with patients who were trying to end their own life and then they come to you in a state of, you know, kind of hoping that you, well, we're hoping that we can save them, but you're not really sure what they want. I mean, you're making decisions like, you know, if if I'm going to, you know, put, say, a tracheostomy, which is a breathing tube in the front of somebody's neck in order to wake them up and help them um, wean from a ventilator, it's a big decision for for us to make, to to ask... um, is this is what the patient would want. And it's not the kind of thing you have a chat with your family about necessarily. People often don't know. I mean, even the things that we think we talk about, like organ donation, for example, very often it's just that it hasn't come up in conversation. You say to families, what do you think they would have wanted? And they, they look at you like, oh God, I wish I knew. That That's kind of the feeling I get. Quite honestly, Aoife, because I say a lot of us have been that soldier standing in a ward with somebody who's 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 close to death, um, I paid a lot of attention to that, what you, what you wrote about relatives and the extraordinary encounters you've had um, and how, how manic many of us become mm. and unthinking and obviously everybody's in shock. Uh, in, 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 is there a way to behave 
for 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 a relative to behave that will or is there is it just completely unpredictable? We don't know how we're going to respond. I mean, I think in general people don't know how they're going to respond, and I think the most important thing I think to to realise if you're a doctor is that there isn't really there isn't a right or a wrong way for relatives to behave because you know who you're not faced with this on an everyday basis. And I guess the right thing is whatever they decide to do in that moment that gets them through. Um, So I I do see patterns in different people's behaviour, but um, it's a bit, mostly it's a little bit sporadic. People just behave in different ways. One of the lines that jumped out at me was, you said the rules of social engagement vanish. Um, You know, you have people hugging you to death almost. But you also had this family shouting at you to fix their brother. And one of them demanded, is it money you're looking for? Um, A father who said you'd be a murderer if you removed the ventilator. Um, The the family who saw you squeezing the ventilator bag and said, you're not going to stop, are you? Yeah. I mean, is that one of the lines you also say is about about, about being a doctor when people ask you, what's it like to be a doctor? You Mm. said said, um, being a doctor feels like feeling everything. And that surprised me. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, kind of people are interested in what I do. People are interested and they often say, you know, why do you like your job? And I think I got into a pattern of not trying to explain it because um, I found it difficult to explain. And I kind of felt like no matter what I said, I would never do it justice, which is kind of where this book came from. That I was trying to just explain it in a real way and and do not only me justice, but the people justice as well. And kind of the complexity of what what we experience together as doctors and patients and, you know, all healthcare professionals. Um, And I think... I only experience things that exist in the world anyway. What I feel is not any different to what everybody else feels. I just feel it a bit more often and probably in a more intense way. You know, it's it, it, it's constant um, and not many people kind of, you know, I went to work on Christmas Day and four of my patients died and that's not, you know, that's, that's, that's not unusual for me. Um, but it isn't really any different. It's just on a different scale. It's not any different to what everybody else experiences because, I mean, at the end of the day, I see thousands of patients. There's thousands of patients in intensive care up in the country and they have relatives and all these things are affecting everybody. We just don't really talk about it that much. One of the things you say, which is, has been sort of something I've considered in the past about the degree of empathy mm. that's either necessary or indeed advisable. Yeah. You say empathy is often exalted in doctors. Mm. But it's a tricky thing, isn't it? Are you better off without any empathy? I mean, I would say no to that as it, I would say definitely not better off without any, but I think you have to be careful. And I think you have to be careful what we mean when we say empathy. Um, there is this uh, book by uh, by a guy called Bloom, which is um, called Against Empathy. But what he kind of argues is that what you actually need is a rational compassion, um, which is because at the end of the day, you empathise with what you understand. And empathy is actually vulnerable to kind of... Um, prejudice and it's vulnerable to um, favouring people that you know and understand um, so and as well you ha- you still have to be able to do your job so like it is I feel it is always necessary for a doctor to be able to see the whole person I believe I would be you know a, a bad doctor if I couldn't see the person hooked up to the ventilator if I didn't want to see them as a whole person I wouldn't be a good doctor in my opinion but at the same time I don't necessarily have to feel the trauma to do that. I can understand it. And yet I get the sense from your book that that is exactly 
what's happening with you. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it is. Sometimes, sometimes you do. You feel it a bit more, like um, particularly when you have patients and young patients and people who become very distressed in intensive care um, with delirium. And there's an example in the book of uh, the young woman who was screaming because, you know, they were just so upset and and unwell and that kind of thing. It's very difficult not to um, have that resonate with you, but at the same time. I think it would be arrogant for me to say that I was feeling what they're feeling because I'm not. I'm just, that's my distress at having to hear or being part of her trauma rather than um, thinking that I feel what she feels. The rules of social engagement, though, Aoife, are they, I mean, you've been, you've been smacked, I think. You've been hit with a, with a, with a walking aid. <laughs> I mean, various things have happened to you. In the end, you're, you're obviously trying to take these, th- these things personally because if a person is in delirium or in dementia of some kind, obviously they don't know what they're doing. But there is, there is, it isn't just this sort of soft, gentle atmosphere where everybody's walking around slowly and quietly. It, you get a sense sometimes that it's quite manic. Yeah, I mean, like you know, you especially in in the phase when you're waking patients up, you know. I, I can, can, you describe, can you describe that waking up? Because it's different to what we think. Yeah, so up. I mean, if we have a patient who's been asleep, um, so when I say asleep, so we've sedated them, so we've given them drugs to keep them asleep and they're on a ventilator, so they've got a tube in their mouth and, you know, we decide that they're ready to start um, becoming conscious again is what we mean. So we turn off the drugs and then they wake up slowly at some point. Which is a great moment at one level. Well, you see, it's not really a particular moment is, is the main thing. So when you have a surgery, you tend to wake up quite quick. But our patients, they wake up over hours sometimes days, sometimes weeks, and sometimes they've had a brain injury and you don't know what they're going to be like. So the kind of waking up isn't, it's not, it's not like a light switch or a moment. It's, it's kind of a slow process. But at some point, patients become aware of a big lump of plastic in their throat. And, you know, some people are more distressed by that. And, you know, if you're unsure about something, your, your gut instinct is to try and get up. But then, you know, you're in a situation where you're tied to, you know, you've got lines in and people are trying to stay there and you don't understand. And I imagine it can be a, a very frightening thing. So, yeah. Um, you were saying that in the book as well, that your first experience as a doctor, your first experience of fear, which is one of the seven signs of life, um, is that your first task was to verify a death. Mm. And you come from a family, Aoife, and a, a traditional Irish family by the sound of things, a good, close Irish family. Yeah. Well, you saw your first dead body, I think, what were you, 11 or yeah, something? Yeah, and I think I felt a bit nonchalant about it. I kind of felt like, this isn't going to bother me. Like, as in, because being Irish, I felt like... You've been to the wake, yeah, so you've seen I felt your like grandmother. We, we do this, yeah. we know what this is. We've, we've seen people, you know, my grandparents have waked in their own bed and, you know, like, you thought you were used to it and then... Yeah, it took me by surprise when I went into that room and I I don't know if it was the concept that I had to say if they were dead. And of course they were dead, but I was saying are they dead or are they not dead? And you're like, I guess your mind can run away with you and, you know, you kind of, I guess I had gone in quite early and the um, the, the lady was, she wasn't cold and she wasn't like a dead patient that uh, or a dead person that I had seen because your relatives aren't like that, you know, straight away. And um the, the fear was, it was unexpected, I guess, yeah. But your imagination can just run away with you, I think. Well, your imagination, but also that huge responsibility of saying, yeah. yes, this person is most certainly dead. Yeah, yeah. And you describe it very deeply, yeah. very profoundly in the sense that, well, supposing the relatives come in and the person, <laughs> their eyes move. Yeah. Um, so I could imagine a very young doctor being really quite spooked by something like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess I guess my surprise was, I, don't, I still to this day don't know how it didn't occur to me at any point that that was part of my job. Like, I just, 
whenever I was thinking about about being a doctor and starting on the wards, I didn't I didn't occur to me that was part of my job. And looking back, that seems absolutely absurd. But it just didn't occur to me. And since then, it, it doesn't bother me at all anymore. But at that time, it was just like, yeah, psychologically, it was it was a little bit taste yeah. to it. Yeah. And just going back a bit to, to into your own background, Eva, and what brought you to that point of being a junior doctor, having to verify life or death. Um, you, you, why did you become a doctor? Was it are there doctors in the family, or how did this happen? No, no, no. I don't have any. Um, there's no doctors in my family, um, and I, I didn't grow up at all with with any doctors or or nurses in the family. Um, so uh, when I was younger, my dad worked and my mum looked after us. And then when, when we were grown up um, and I went to Edinburgh University to study science. Yeah, why did mom, you do that, by the way? So um, I went to, so basically I applied for medicine in the Leaving Cert. And I repeated my Leaving Cert because I wanted to do medicine and I felt like I wouldn't get the points first time around. I kind of knew I wouldn't. Um, and when I repeated, I came up five points short. So, yeah, so um, I, was, I, was, I was sad, but I thought, you know what, I'll just go somewhere else. So I, I was supposed to go to Trinity to do human genetics. And at the last minute, I changed my mind and I said, I'm going to go to Edinburgh and do science just to go somewhere different. Um, and coincidentally, that's the year that my mum also started university as a mature student in Trinity. So she is a nurse now, but wasn't when I was growing up. Um, and also since then, my sister Neve, one of my sisters, is a nurse in London now. So now, um, my mum and my sister are both nurses, but that wasn't a thing growing up. What age was your mum when she went back to when, when she went to? Oh God, um, I, I think she'd kill me if I said that, but um, roughly. <laughs> In her forties, fifties. I mean, 80s. You know, she had four grown-up children. Okay, <laughs> and leave I leave it there university. anyway. Great mom. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, she yeah, she she was great. Um, but yes, yeah, so she. So since then, but I didn't certainly didn't grow up in a medical um, a medical family or anything like that. So you were the first actually to look at this world and say that would that would that appeals to me. Yeah, I just it's just I always wanted to do it, and I you know people ask me all the time. Is it because your brother had a disability and is it because he was in and out of hospital? And, um, you know, in my brother's adult life, he certainly was not in and out of hospital. That was not part of his story at all. But obviously, when we were younger, he was. Um, and I find it difficult to say, yes, that's why I'm a doctor, because I just think you don't know. Like, you can't live your life again and go back and see what you'd be like without it. Um, and when you grow up with a certain normal, there's no point that you go Aha, yeah, now I'm going to be a doctor because of this. So, But you did grow up, Eve, in a way that, that, and again, it's quite a moving part of the book where you describe your reaction when people pointed at your brother and you were there like a little lioness poised to go into battle on his yeah. behalf. Yeah. So there was something there from when you were, presumably it applied to the whole family, from when you were all a very young family, yeah. where you were prepared to go into battle for your brother. Oh, absolutely. And I think I think the interesting thing about all of that is that when I talk about that in the book, it's very much my story, because Aaron's story is very much a story of being an activist and being very active in the independent living movement and the disability rights um, campaign. And he was always very out there um, so that was his story. My story was something different. So it wasn't. It's not even a reflection of him. That whole kind of protectiveness that we had um, as a close family. Um, you know, Aaron was always a, much bigger than that. Certainly, you're you, you're not just a doctor, Eve. As far as I can see, you also have a real feel for language and words. And one of the things that you know, I, I was looking at to, throughout the book, the selection of words that really get your back up. Uh, one of them is wheelchair bound, oh, that, which makes perfect sense. Oh, that word. I just think like it, it, like nobody's tying these people in. I mean, 
you know, I think there's a consultant who, who I know that writes, when he writes notes, he says wheelchair mobile. And I like that because it's, if, you, if, you, if you're in a situation where you're not mobile, the wheelchair is a vehicle for mobility. It's not, it's not tying you down, it's moving you forward. So, yeah. Another one is poor historian, which I didn't yeah. quite get. <laughs> yeah, so we have this thing where um, when, you, when, when you're taking a history from a patient, and by that I mean you're asking them why they came to hospital today, what their complaint is, do they have a cough, when did the cough start, you know, that kind of thing. That's called their history. Um, and often if you have a patient who you cannot quite get the answers that you're trying to get out of them, or sometimes it's because they have um, dementia or something else that they're not quite able to give you the kind of clear history you want, you write poor historian, which I think it's an odd term to use and it kind of suggests that they've done something wrong. That they've failed. That's yeah, that they're yes. really bad at telling you about themselves. And, yes. Yeah. Gosh. It's just not helpful. Okay. And an, another word is demented, which I think yes. speaks for itself yeah. because it certainly shouldn't be misused. But one that really interests me is fighter. Oh, yeah. Um, and it comes up in your discussed mm. chapter as well. Yeah. Which is a very interesting story. Would you tell that story about this this friend yeah. of a, a, a so young patient? I guess to preface it, I... Have, I have kind of an objection to the whole um, fighter metaphor that permeates um, medicine. It's particularly cancer and people who have cancer. And I think, while I wouldn't be arrogant enough to think that I understand what it's like to have cancer because I've never, I've certainly never been there. When I see patients and I see them in the last days, it's, it's really uncomfortable with me that we would call them a fighter and then implicit in that, even if you don't mean it, is the kind of message that there's something different when they don't live you know, um, and it, I found it very uncomfortable. And also, it doesn't, it's not really a descriptive term. It doesn't tell me anything. Like, if, if somebody says Kathy's a fighter, I, it tells me nothing. But if you tell me, like, you know, she likes to read a particular book, then I, I feel like I know you a little bit. Um, and so I, I don't like that term. It, it gets my back up a little bit. Um, and once I was in a situation where uh, I had a patient who was very unwell and the relative or family friend that was with them had said to us, we had said we didn't really know if they should come to intensive care. Maybe they wouldn't survive anywhere. We weren't clear what you think she'd want. And the answer was, yeah, they're not really a fighter. And I guess hating that term so much, I just, I couldn't believe that somebody had said that out loud. And I suddenly felt, off as a, yeah, yeah, I mean, and I guess I just, it was even worse. It was, it was 10 times worse than hearing somebody say and that somebody is a fighter. And um, incidentally, what happened in that case is the patient came to intensive care. They got better quicker than we thought they would. Um, better in the sense that got through those days, but would still ultimately would only have a few months probably to live. And said, you know what, this isn't for me. I'd like to go home and just be at home and not come back to hospital. Which was, there's nothing wrong with that decision. Um, but it, I guess it's just the way of describing that, again, in that fighter terms. Yeah. It's, and, 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 and that's one of the things that you deal with, again, quite fascinatingly for anybody who's been, ever been close to somebody who's, who's been required to be a fighter, um, is, is, is your view of how people use those precious days or months mm. or whatever it is when they are going to almost inevitably die. And you're, again, you're very good in statistics and, and how annoyed you get when you see headlines saying she beat the doctors, they were wrong. Um, tell us a bit about that, about about those, how, how the odds and how you see it and how those stupid headlines see it. I think um, the issue really is that when we talk about, you know, 
I think sometimes people feel, for good reason, that if I say, you know, I, I think there's only a 5% chance you're going to make it, they forget that I'm saying that, like, there is a 5% chance, it's a small chance, but it is a chance. And somehow I think people can often feel like by giving the 95% odds that they won't make it, that that's what I want, you know, that that, that I'm saying that, and it, it, which isn't the case. You know, it, if it wasn't for people with small odds having a hope of, of, of pulling through or, or, or getting home, we wouldn't have critical care, it wouldn't exist. So, you know, my specialty exists because those odds exist, um, but people can often see them as kind of a challenge. And, I, I mean, look, if that gets them through their illness, then... You know that that I'm ha they, they should do that. I mean, again, it's whatever's best for them. But um, I often think that when when they're presented in the headlines, it almost feels like when you give odds, it's because that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. So they can then go on for you know, doctors were wrong. She's yeah. They said twenty years ago she would be this, and now she's still flying. Mm -hmm. Um, which as you say, isn't the point of it at all. No. Um, tell us a little bit about about your you 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 you, you know. How you, you're very young yourself, if I, if I may say so. You're only qualified at what, about eight years? Uh, yeah, so 2011 I qualified. And you, you, if I may say, I, I, I don't need any false modesty here, but you are practically at the pinnacle of your profession. You've become a consultant. Uh, no, so I'm 18 months away from being a consultant. Right. Yes. <laughs> it takes, so when you, when you leave uh, medical school, which I left in 2011, the kind of quickest way to get to be an ITU consultant would be nine years of training. So I'm in my eighth year now. Um, so in 2020, in the, in the summer of 2020, I will due to be finished my specialist training. And in the meantime, while you've been doing all this, which one would consider to be enough to be going on with, really, you've been writing something called the Secret Blog, which for the British Medical Association, yeah, uh, which is meant to be completely anonymous. And the Secret Blog, I think, was it part part of the genesis for the book? Yeah. So exactly. So the Secret Doctor was a blog that I wrote for um, two years. Um, and the um, so when I wrote that, I, I was anonymous. I didn't even have a gender. I was just a secret doctor. People gathered that I worked in intensive care because most of my stories were about that, but that's all they knew. Um, and I guess the, the idea behind the blog initially, which was um, a guy called Neil Hallows at the BMA, um, he he was my editor and, and he kind of designed it as a way of connecting doctors of all different grades with each other about things that we should talk about and kind of invited anonymous comments and things. And then when I took it over, so I was the second secret doctor, when I took it over, we kind of expanded our Twitter audience quite a lot. And that audience wasn't just doctors, it was the public as well. So we began to see an opportunity in that. And then at some point then, um, about two years ago, um, a, an editor from Penguin Random has contacted me and said, I've been reading your blog, I don't know who you are, but would you be interested in that? And that's where it came from. And so in the meantime, while you've been climbing this extraordinarily <laughs> demanding ladder, you've been writing the, the, the Secret Doctor's blog yeah. and writing a book. Yeah, I mean, the book partially was informed by the blog. Um, and I mean, yeah, I, I enjoy doing it and the things I would talk about anyway, so. Um, women in medicine, Aoife, uh, one of the things you say, um, and again, it's a, it's almost, I hardly noticed it, and then I went back and read it again. You mentioned females in medicine often go through the indignity of raising their heads above the parapet only to be referred to in veiled negative terms, such as 
feisty, which is another word we should all ban as yeah. well. <laughs> um, is that a is is that a thing in medicine, or have is is that is that? I mean, I know a, a, a very a wonderful oncologist, for example, who wears high heels, and I have a reason to observe her going around in these high heels all day. She's running from ward to ward in her high heels, and I asked her once. I said, "Why do you wear those high heels?" And she said, "Because it gives her height." And she's able to see, meet her male peers almost head to head. It had never occurred to me that that would be an issue in a busy in a busy hospital. Yeah, is is that something? Is that a thing? So I think it's getting better. I mean, and I would be very clear in saying that the role models that I have had in my life, and because of the specialty I'm in, they've mostly been men because intensive care um, has many more male consultants than female. Um, all of those consultants have never really made me feel like that apart from one when I was a medical student when I said what I wanted to do he said this isn't really a job for a woman that was once in you know and that was in medical school ever since then I've had nothing but support but I think in general there can still be kind of an undertone and I guess maybe it's not just medicine um, where people are always willing wanting to jump on the emotional female you know they're always wanting to say oh she's a bit hysterical or they, they misinterpret passion for hysteria and um, that that is a concern. And I think probably I didn't really consider the, the kind of the benefit I had in not having a gender when I was anonymous. Mm. Um, and part of me wonders if any of this will be interpreted differently because I'm female now um, and I'm not sure. Yeah. Are you more, do you have more feeling? Are you yeah. more empathetic? Yeah. All that. Now, if I could talk to you for a week, quite honestly, and I heartily recommend this book. It's actually in some cases not an easy read. It depends on what stage in your life you're at, I think, in many ways. But I think it's a wonderful insight into intensive care, which is often not, we think of the emergency departments and we think of all other areas in a hospital. We tend not to think of intensive care. So I would totally recommend it on that level. But also one of the things that jumped out, I mean, what I want to finish with is um, the words you use to soothe yourself when you were sitting with an old man who was oh, dying yeah. alone. Yeah. Raymond Carver's late fragment. Would you yes. mind reciting those words for me? And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Dr. Eve Abbey for speaking to the Women's Podcast and a reminder that her book is called Seven Signs of Life. Remember, you can subscribe to the Women's Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. And you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. And until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 